It's Wednesday, November 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Brian White, and from Fool.com, David Hansen. Good to see you guys. Hey. Happy Wednesday. Good to see you, Chris. We all survived Election Day. Yes. I meant to mention on yesterday's podcast, Tim Hansen was here. Uh, I, I, I should have mentioned to Tim that I actually voted for him yesterday. Oh, really? I wrote him in for a um, uh, Commonwealth attorney for the city of Alexandria because that person was running unopposed. And I just thought, you know. <laughs> Is he an attorney? Um, he's not an attorney, uh, Tim Hanson. Could be, Tim Hanson is not an attorney. I don't know that that's required. I do know that um, you don't need to be an attorney to be elected attorney general in mm. the Commonwealth of Virginia. So I'm a, I'm just assuming that extends to uh, localities as well. But who knows? I, you know, Tim Hanson. He, Chris he, would make a good attorney. He or lo- Tim would make a good attorney. He, he, lo- he lost in a landslide. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, he gets to keep his day job. Uh, earnings season rolls on. We'll talk Zillow, Middleby. We'll get into retail. Uh, let's start, though, with Tesla Motors. Uh, shares down pretty big this morning uh, to the point where it tripped the short sale circuit breaker. David, I'll start with you. Uh, on paper, this looked like a good quarter. Mm-hmm. They delivered more cars than they. I mean, it, it seemed like everything was higher than was expected. And yet the stock is getting kind of whacked. The old caveat on paper on looking paper, good, yes, exactly. but not maybe not in real life. <laughs> it's the sports analogy on <laughs> paper. This team looks great, <laughs> but they don't play the games on paper. And I, I, if there's a stock out there that is trading not on today and re, it's trading based on what's tomorrow, it, it's Tesla. And yes, today's quarter could look great on paper, but you still can't avoid that valuation and the droves of people out there that think this stock is undervalued. So when there's a, a, a quarter Wait, that's undervalued? Overvalued. 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 Okay. Um, so, so when you have a quarter that's maybe not a blowout quarter, you're going to see big drops like this. And 16%, I think that's the last I saw that it was down. That's a lot. But I'll, I'll step back and give you some some reference to that. We just celebrated here at The Fool the Amazon 100 bagger. and Right. David Gardner picking that back in 1997. Yep. It's up 100 times now. So very good pick there. Yeah. I went back and looked. How many times did Amazon drop 10% in a day since it's been public? 58 times oh, yeah. Amazon has dropped over 10% in a day. So I'm not saying that Tesla is the next 100 bagger, but I'm just saying with these growth stocks that can really change the industry that they're working in, there's going to be volatile quarters and this is one of them. And Brian, we've talked about this before, the notion that stocks can get to a point where they are, quote, priced to perfection. Mm-hmm. And it seems like when you look at Tesla, which, by the way, I think coming into these results shares up 375% yeah. for the yeah. year, which is, uh, you know, congratulations. If you're, if you're a shareholder, you've had a great year. But it does seem like it does now operate in that arena where it is now priced to perfection. Well, that's, I mean, it's a good lesson about momentum investing, right? I mean, it it feels great on the way up, and there's no way to get ahead of the selling on the way down. You know, it happens so quickly. And I think David brought up a great point with Amazon, and the difference there is, listen, Tesla is no Amazon. Tesla operates in one of the one of the most difficult industries in the world, auto production. You know, it, it is no, it won't be an Amazon. It, it, if you look at the business results, they're on track. 
right? right. But, but but when you look at the valuation of the stock, and I mean, it was up almost 400% in an incredibly tough industry. It was just ripe for a sell-off. And and, and I think it's a, it's a good lesson, a broad lesson for investors at home is, is if you bought a 3%, 5% position in Tesla and it runs almost 400%, now, all of a sudden, it becomes a 10% plus position in your portfolio. Then it's time to take a broad look at the business. Right. It's in the auto industry. Is it responsible to load up more or to hold an over 10% position in a company like Tesla with a valuation like David mentioned? You know, it, the trouble is, 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 is all those emotions, the greed comes into play and it really impacts uh, decision making and, and, and you, get, you can get hurt. But to go back to the point you made, David, about David Gardner and the hundred bagger for Amazon, if you are taking the long view, if you look at Tesla Motors and you say, well, do, where do I think the auto industry writ large is going to be in 15 years? Is it going to go back to where it was five, ten, you know, you know, 30 years ago where it's like, yeah, no, there are no electric cars. Or do I think this universe of electric cars, whether mm-hmm. they're made by Tesla or someone else, do I think that's growing? And I think if you do think that, mm-hmm. that's probably part of your thesis for holding on to this thing. Exactly. And, and I don't think anyone can know for sure what that is going right. to look like. So yeah. that, that's the risk that you bake in with Amazon. And I think last time Brian and I were on the show, we talked about these growth stocks and what constitutes a pullback and a buying opportunity. Right. I don't think even this 16% constitutes as a, okay, it's a pullback. Now it's a buying opportunity. A pullback with with Tesla would be 40%, 45%, 50% from, from the highs. I look at the 16% and I don't necessarily see this as Okay, here's the drop I was looking for. Now it's time to the buy. The stock is dramatically cheaper. Exactly. Now. And Chris, you're talking about a, a major shift in, in uh, consumer behavior when you talk about mass adoption yep. of electric cars. And doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but that's that's a tough hurdle. You know, Zillow uh, reported a loss for the third quarter. Their expenses nearly doubled. Uh, shares down about three or four percent when I when I walked in the yeah. studio uh, a few moments ago. Um, what did you guys think of this quarter? What 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 sort of stands out to you? Why, why are you pointing out the loss, Chris? Got to look at the revenue growth here. <laughs> Let's be optimistic. Uh, revenue growth very strong. Their marketplace segment. So this is real estate agents that are paying Zillow subscriptions. That revenue is up seventy three percent. That's a big number. But that's slower than what it's been the prior quarters. It's been hovering between 80 and 90% growth. So that's slowing, but it's on a bigger base. So 73% still pretty solid there. And when you look at just the people that are coming to the Zillow platform, 64 million unique monthly monthly users in August. That is yeah. a lot of people. They're by far the biggest biggest player in this online real estate space. So I thought it was a pretty good quarter personally. Well, and to that point, uh, one of the quotes I saw from uh, the CEO, uh, Spencer Raskoff, uh, in response to that was he said, look, this isn't the time to focus on gross margins. This is this is the time for growth. And it seems like, once again, we're talking about a growth stock. Yeah, gross margins is about one of the last things you look at for a company like Zillow. They don't manufacture anything. Um, it, the metric I go to first is is to see if the platform is still compelling for their customers, the, the people that pay them, the realtors that pay them. And uh, 
you know, if you go back over a year, they were adding 3,500 realtors a quarter. Then it bumped up over 4,000 uh, realtors a quarter if you go back to over the past three to nine months. So great progress. And this quarter, they added over 6,000 uh, realtors. So, so the platform is compelling. Um, it, that's the that's the number that I look for. Just like with LinkedIn, I'm looking at how many corporate customers, new corporate customers, are signing up every quarter. For Zillow, I'm looking at how many new realtors are coming onto the platform. And then the second metric I go to is the average revenue per realtor, so their ARPU number, and that's holding steady at two two hundred sixty four. So what that tells you is. Out of that 6,000 number, you don't have like a 1,000 that are coming in at a very low-end uh, subscription. They're all coming in at their platinum high-end subscription. And it, it's to me, it was a great quarter. Got to give a shout-out to our colleagues Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger because uh, they did uh, a live interview with uh, Spencer Raskoff, the CEO, um, after the bell yesterday. Uh, if, if you have the chance, uh, it's it's still on uh, fool.com. Uh, you can watch the video. It's about a 15-minute interview that mm-hmm. they did with him, uh, really going through the quarter. I, I I thought it was great. This is this is not a company. This is not a stock I have on my watch list. This is not a company that I'm I'm really. I have others that I'm looking at a little bit more closely. I thought this was a really interesting interview. And one of the just one of the nuggets that stood out to me was rentals and yes, how that yes. is becoming that. And I, that's something I hadn't even really considered with Zillow, but when Raskoff talked with Jason and Maddie about the rental opportunity, the numbers that they're starting to see, and how they are just now beginning to monetize that. That seems like it could be a, a pretty big opportunity for the stock. It's gonna, it's it's most likely to be a really big opportunity for the company because the important thing for a, for a company like Zillow is they operated in a very competitive space. But like LinkedIn, it's nice to look at these businesses and see multiple revenue streams. Yes. And Zillow is really building that out. They have a mortgage business. They have the core realtor business. And the rental business has an opportunity to be probably not as large as the realtor business, but maybe three-quarters the size of it. It's, it's going to be a big market. Third, uh, third quarter earnings results in for Middleby. Uh, what's going on with this one, Brian? Because the yeah. stock... Hit an all-time high, then fell back. It's now it's down slightly. You pointed out right before we started taping, we just have the results to go on with the, the conference yeah. call is is probably happening now as as we're taping this. But this is a company that you follow closely. It's it's uh, a recommendation in the everlasting portfolio in the Motley Fool One service. What stood out in their quarter? Well, all we all we really have before we come on the tape is the press release. The uh, conference call, the preliminary, just got published. Uh, it, looking at Middleby's results, it looks like another solid quarter. Revenue's up 40%. Organic revenue growth, if you exclude acquisitions, is up 12%, which is in line with the growth that they've posted over the past year or so. Uh, you know, this is a business that continues to benefit from uh, restaurant chain expansion around the world. Right. For anyone listening who's not familiar yeah. with Middleby, they make ovens, they make commercial ovens. Yeah, they're, cooking equipment. They're yep. not, they are the very definition of a company that you encounter as a consumer, but you have no idea that you're encountering them. Yeah, all the big name restaurant chains uh, use Middleby's equipment. They have a great competitive position. Um, it, and then if you look forward for Middleby, in terms of their, their cooking equipment with the restaurant chains, they're number one in China, they're number one in India, they're number one in Latin America. Are those big markets, China and India? Those are going to be, <laughs> those are gonna be not, not only, those are going to be big markets, and those are also going to 
provide growth for years and years and years and years to come. And then the other, if you look forward, the other aspect of Middleby is their food processing business, which they don't get as much publicity around because they're known for their their cooking equipment. The interesting thing about the food processing industry is uh, they really need to come up, come up to speed and uh, replace old equipment. So Middleby's benefiting from that. And then you're also seeing a nice long tailwind for Middleby in terms of demand from those countries like China and India, uh, Brazil. Uh, so they're going to benefit from that too because they're already in those markets. Uh, demand for processed food, prepared food in, in the developing world is starting to grow, and that looks like it'll be a nice long tailwind for Middleby. You look at this company a lot more closely than I do, but from what I've been able to observe, it seems like, among other things, this is a company that really focuses on what they're best at. They, they, they don't seem distracted. Um, mm. And as an investor, I love to see that. I'm not a shareholder, but I love to see companies that are focused on what they're doing because it seems like Middleby is in the type of business where maybe there's an executive there who's saying, oh, you know what we really need to do? We really need to add uh, a whole consumer line. We, we really need to push into the home. We really need to start doing these other things. And it seems like in uh, Salim Basul, you have a CEO who's just very focused on just sticking to their knitting. Yeah, the CEO uh, is a major story with this company. He's done amazing things, and he continues to make incredibly smart business decisions. He's been in those emerging markets for years, you know, so he set himself up. And then to your point, Chris, is... Middleby has run into trouble in the past, and they reversed that years and years and years ago. They tried to get into the cold equipment, right, refrigerating and freezing, and stuff, and it was a debacle. They they were running up against entrenched competitors. They had no advantage in that market, and they had the reverse course. And Salim was a big uh, a big reason why they reversed course and they cleaned up. And you're right, they focus on what they're very good at, and they have a great competitive position. Finally, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch down double digits this morning after warning that the holiday season will be weak. I thought this would be a good opportunity to talk because we are now we're now heading into the holidays, and the the money quote for me from the Associated Press story uh, was the company said late Tuesday that spending among younger people has slowed. Uh, as the parent of a younger person, uh, I can say that I think probably what they mean is it is slowed for Abercrombie and Fitch, <laughs> not not in general. Spending among younger people, at least in my house, has not slowed. Uh, this seems like it's shaping up to be potentially for some retailers just a horrible end to 2013. It hasn't been a great year in general for a lot of retailers, particularly in the apparel space. But when you layer over that, David, the fact that just because of the way the calendar falls, this is going to be the shortest holiday retail season in a decade, I just, I just think it's, we're, we're looking at multiple potential train wrecks in the retail space. Or am I wrong? I, I think that's probably a pretty accurate point, Chris. I think you're right on there. Um, when you look at Abercrombie & Fitch, this is my personal opinion. I'm not expressing the opinions of the, of the fool here. Is this just like the worst business of all time? I mean, look at the, look at the, the numbers are shocking. They're, they're so, they were so bad. And the thing that I liked in their press release, they tried to put some glimmer of hope there. They hi- highlighted that direct-to-consumer sales were up 11%. Ooh, 11%. That's good. What's the base on that, right? Exactly. That accounts for about 15% of their sales. So, okay, up 11% on your 15 
the rest of your business is doing horribly. Same store sales down 14%. I mean, I don't know where the hope is here. And the stock doesn't look expensive by any means. It should never look expensive. No. Uh, but it doesn't look dirt cheap either. So I don't, maybe I'm confused or missing something, but I do not see any reason to own Abercrombie. And let me know if I'm wrong, anyone out there listening. Well, you raise a good point, though, because we what we have seen in apparel retail is almost a, a rotating uh, table where it seems like over the last maybe five to eight years, every apparel retailer has had a chance to sit at the head of the table. And by that, I mean every one of them, it seems like, has gotten knocked down to the point where people say, well, gosh, it isn't it isn't that horrible a business, and then th- they'll have a great year. We've seen it with Gap. We've, in- we've seen it with Abercrombie & Fitch a few years ago, where the stock had a great run. So, I, I think you raise a good point in that it could get knocked down to the point. I mean, maybe what you're hoping for, if this is a stock on your watch list, or you're looking at apparel retail in general, you're hoping that a few of them just get completely blown out this holiday, so that come January, the stock is so dirt cheap that you think, oh, well, maybe, you know. Yeah, it definitely reduces the risk. You make a good point, Chris, because it's a really risky place to invest, especially if you're a buy-to-hold investor. Yeah. You're relying on teens, you know, fashion trends among teens. So, yeah, it really helps if you if you buy the stock incredibly cheap, right, because so it, it reduces your future risk. But the other thing I would say is you have to be nimble. You're investing in teen retail space. Yes. You better follow these companies, and you better be nimble. I mean, when fashion trends change, things like this happen. Seven consecutive quarters of comp declines for Abercrombie and Fitch. Unlike other businesses where you get a bad quarter, maybe two in a row, when fashion trends change, you're talking about two years of just right. declining same-store sales. That's ter- it's- and, and Yeah, and I should caveat, this is that, that's my opinion from a foolish investing perspective, if you're buying a business and holding it for 10 years, I I don't question that a private equity shop could come in here, extract extract some value from Abercrombie & Fitch. That's possible. And I don't want people saying, oh, David Hansen, he had no idea what he was talking about. Look, (laughs) Carlisle Group just made a lot of money off this. I'm talking about foolish investors that want to buy great businesses and hold them for 10 years. I don't see how Abercrombie fits that mold. It's Charlie Munger's line, right? You know, Warren Buffett's right-hand man for all these years. Who, so many great quotes, but one of my favorites is, uh, you know, my favorite strategy is to buy a great company and then sit on my ass. And I, you're not, and I think, you're not doing that with Abercrombie. And I think, yeah, I mean, to your boy, Brian, if you're looking at any of these apparel retail stocks, you, these are the shortest leashes you are going to put a stock on. We'll wrap up there. Brian White, David Hanson, guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.